Shalom uvracha to all of you. Thank you for coming. I want to take a, a brief moment at the beginning of this year today to acknowledge that today is the yurtzeit of my grandmother, La Shalom, Rose Shulman. And so I would like, with your reshut, to dedicate this year the Lunishmata, Chienarachal Bas Harav Moshe Yaakov. This shear is perhaps a little different than most of the shearim that you will have or will encounter in the course of this of these Yimeyun, in that subject of the primary subject of the shear is not the text of Tanakh, but in fact the approach of Midrash and the methodology of Chazal in the Midrash in their interpretation of Tanakh. However, it still falls into the category of a shear in Tanakh in the context because of the assumption that we are going to be working with and that many of these Midrashic stories that we are familiar with in fact are based on biblical events. Chazal, in a very unique methodology, drew our attention and our eye to the connection between these stories and events in Tanakh. This is really just the tip of the iceberg, and in the short time that we have, what I would like to do with you is give you an an inkling or an insight into a whole host of examples of the thesis that I will present to you and share with you in the opening five minutes of this year. And so today is really, if I had to categorize it, a sheer, which is a summary or pinpoint headings of 14 or 15 different shiurim. Each one of these midrashic stories is really a shiur into itself. Uh, And so my hope today is really to convince you of, not that we need convincing, uh, but to share with you the the significance and the breadth of uh, of this idea. On the source page that you have, in the opening uh, source number one, I've included a very brief bibliography. I apologize for it having come out so small. Um, Which is really a set of references to various sources as they, and the approach to Midrash altogether. One of the problems we have in our understanding of Midrash is that we think of Midrash as a kind of holistic, monolithic, one picture, we have the Gemara and we have Midrash, uh, which is not true. There are many, many books of Midrash, and there are many different kinds of Midrash, Midrash Halacha, Midrash Agada, uh, Midrash that are compiled at various different times in the sequence of uh, rabbinic literature. Uh, and But what they share in common, what most of these sources share in common, is a question. And the question is, when we look at the words of Chazal, and we look at the way Chazal describe events and interpretations of text, I'm going to, for a moment, leave aside the question of Midrash Halacha and their halachic interpretation of the text of Tanakh. That is not the subject of the shir today. But dealing primarily with Agadic Midrashim and their interpretation of the material of the text of Tanakh, 
There are times, there are moments, and there are places where in the Midrash we find remarkable stories, remarkable insights uh, that seem to exist in a independence, it, it, with an independence from the text itself. And the question is, where do these stories come from? The most famous, most obvious classic example that comes to mind uh, is, of course, the reference in the Midrash to Abraham's famous ex- experience in the furnaces of Nimrod. Where does Abraham come to Nimrod? How did Abraham end up in the furnace of Nimrod? The entire story with which we begin our study of the world, the life and times of Abraham Avinu, the Midrash about Abraham being thrown into the furnace of Nimrod after he destroys the idols of his father, has, it seems, no basis in the text of Tanakh. It seems to be a story that is con- in completely in the context, found only in the context of the Midrash. Where do these stories come from? Moreover, in this bibliography, you will find references to a much more controversial question. The controversial question is, when it comes to Midrashic insights into Tanakh, interpretations of text, interpretations of psukim, are we in fact bound and obligated by their words and by their interpretation? A much more fundamental, controversial question. but one that we need to address in our understanding of Midrashic uh, literature. If I had one answer to this question, then uh, that would be unfair. Uh, I can tell you that there are many, that there are many answers. Uh, but the most famous one, and what I think all of the sources that I tried to put on this bibliography point to, is that Chazal were interpreters, they were parshanim. They were interpreters of the text. Unlike the halachic literature and the halachic midrashim, which is based on the Masoret, when it came to interpretation of text, they, in their insight and in their understanding and in their breadth of their wisdom, interpreted the text as they saw it, as they understood it, often in a language and with a set of tools that we don't necessarily have or understand, messages, parables, symbols, and codes. But in all cases, the best conclusion I can give you is that I think, while we don't necessarily have to take every Midrash literally, I think we do have to take every Midrash seriously. And that, that I think, is at the core of what this shear is about. So let me give you two examples from the bibliography and then we're going to jump right into the thesis and then a whole smattering of examples uh, of this thesis. The, uh, the Rambam has in a number of places a uh, treatise where he discusses the various types of Midrashim and various approaches to Midrash. He includes it in his introduction to the Shemona Prakim. He includes it in his Mara Nevuchim. Uh, one small excerpt in source number two. When it comes to the Arba Minim, Chazal have multiple Midrashim in terms of their understanding of what the, each of these Minim represent. 
והוא שהם אצלם כאין המליצות הפיוטיות לא שכחו עניין אותו הכתוב. They spoke in poetry. They spoke in symbols and in images. Don't necessarily mean to tell us that that is the text in context, which is usually the simplest way I explain the concept of pshat. Text in context. Rabbi Avram ben Arambam, perhaps even more uh, concretely, Da ki perush lapsukim, mi shelo igia, she'enam tulim bi'ikar mi'ikarei adat, velo bedin midinei atara, she'enam kabala bi'adam, avo yesh mehem lefi hachra'at hada'at. When it came to interpret, comes to interpretation of text, outside of the arena of Masorat of Halacha, Chazal interpreted the way they saw it, not necessarily from a Masorat that they received uh, from High Sinai. And that comes, that brings us to our stories. So many of these biblical, sto- these Midrashic stories, questions arise, are they quote-unquote history, historiography, interpretation, text, when we talk about Avram in the furnace of uh, in the Kivshana Eish of, uh, of Nimrod, what is that story telling us? Is that a historical fact? If it's an historical fact, why isn't it in the Torah? If it's not a historical fact, why do Chazal present it as such? That's a fundamental question. Every teacher in uh, the school system at some point or another deals with this question when dealing with their students, whether they be preschool students in which we tell, teach our students these midrashic stories as part of our review of Parshat Shavua, or whether we teach them to adults. Uh, in all cases, this question arises often. I want to share with you in source number five in the excerpt from Rav Yaakov Medan Shlita. I hope I don't need to explain who Medan is, Rosh Yeshiva Vishivat Haratzion. Uh, I had the schus of uh, drinking the waters of his Torah for the last, uh, both in presence and five years that I studied Tanakh uh, in, in his shiurim, and uh, as well as over the years. Um, this he is a thesis that I heard articulated for the first time in a shir that he gave. Uh, it subsequently has been written up in a shir that he wrote on Parsha de Shavua, Parsha Noach. Uh, and it is this thesis that is a jumping point for today's shir. And source number five. Chazal enam misaprei sipurim. Chazal were not in the business of telling stories. Ubarur shamevinitivrei chazal kipshutam harehu min haksilim. Following in the footsteps and in the uh, tradition of the Rambam, Rabbi Avram ben Rambam, the Shulta Kiborim, in many of these fanciful midrashim in which they seem to defy logic, rational thinking, um, Moshe, the classic example that the Rambam gives is the midrash about Moshe Rabbeinu uh, being ten amot high, being able to jump ten amot high and reaching the ankle of Ogmel Chabashan. These kinds of midrashim that defy rational thinking, the Rambam writes, uh, if you take them literally, then you do two things. You abuse the medrash that is really much more sophisticated and much more insightful than fanciful stories. And you do an avel to the image of Chazal in the eyes of many who are not ready to accept a literal interpretation of these midrashim. And by doing so and by remaining steadfast in a literal interpretation, uh, you essentially reduce or lower the image of 
Midrash Chazal in the eyes of the of the Tzibur. Chazal ba'agadotahem af lo tifkedu ke ma'avirei musarot k'tumot nor were Chazal in the in these Midrashic stories were they transmitting some kind of masorot misinai ele bi'ikar kipashanei mikra. They were interpreting the text. They were interpreting the stories and the texts of Tanakh. Before I read the next sentence, I need to add one caveat or one one more statement. There is an assumption that Rav Medan worked bases this thesis on, and that assumption holds true, and you can see it in almost every page of Gemara. Chazal knew Tanakh by heart. Not only did Chazal know Tanakh by heart, but Chazal assumed that we also knew Tanakh by heart. That's a much bigger challenge. If you read a Gemara and you read a Pasuk that the Gemara quotes, more often than not, I wouldn't even say the rule, but more often than not, the real message that Chazal are trying to convey is in the half of the Pasuk that the Gemara doesn't quote, or in the context of the rest of the Perak that the Gemara doesn't quote. Chazal simply started the text, dot, 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 finished the text, because of course we all know Tanakh by heart. That assumption is what has made Midrash so hard for us to understand, because we don't necessarily know Tanakh by heart, I include myself in that uh, statement, and therefore we don't necessarily realize We don't necessarily realize where uh, Chazal were going uh, with these Midrash. Back to the text. Mekoro, says Rav Medan, Mekoro shall call Sipur Chazal. Na'utz b'derech klal b'mikre mikra'i kodem. Foundation of almost every Midrashic story has its basis in some other Biblical event. Navir et Varein. Bimukomot Rabim Hamikra Sotem Veenom Feret Uruima Meavim Sibali Trachshiot and Tuarot. There are many places where. Do I need to translate? Okay. There are many places where the text is simply ambiguous uh, and it does not specify all the details. Chazal Kipashene Mikra Bao Lefereshet Asatum. Chazal simply came to fill in that which is missing, what is called Ashlamat Parim, to fill in the gap. Ulishem kach yatsru agadot hamashlimot et haparim shemotir amikra. And for that purpose, they, and I will forgive the, um, uh, the, the, the terminology here, but it's extreme. Ulishem kach. Yatsru Agadot. They invented Agadot. That would fill in the gap. So the question becomes on what basis were these in- stories brought to light? Why this story, particularly on this particular event? Next paragraph. Divrei Torah aniyim b'mokom echad, v'ashirim b'mokom acher. Divrei Torah 
are not written in a linear fashion. Very often, that which is elaborated upon in one place is only hinted to in another. Chazal very often would take an event or a person or person or a personality or a story in Tanakh that's missing or that needs inter- understanding or that needs depth and it added that depth by comparing the particular event or story to another story in Tanakh, another personality in Tanakh. And in so doing, drew our attention to parallels and contrasts that we wouldn't necessarily have recognized or seen before. Much of the methodology of the study of Tanakh today is based on a comparison of text, language, nuances, phraseology in one place of Tanakh, phraseology in another place in Tanakh, take these two places in Tanakh, superimpose them, put them one next to another, and compare. That's not new methodology. That wasn't invented here in Machon Herzog. That's essentially the methodology the Chazal used in Midrash. The difference is, however, that when they drew those, our attention to those distinctions, they did so through the tool of the parable through the tool of the story, or many other such uh, tools that they had at their disposal in the Midrash methodology, whose purpose, and this doesn't apply to every Midrash, but to many, whose purpose was to draw our attention to the link between two events. That only works because Chazal assumed that we, the reader, would immediately recognize the link. And so when we would read a story about Avram and the Kivshan Eish of Nimrod in, as Melech Shin'ar, in our association, we know exactly what Chazal we're referring to, because we know Tanakh by heart. And so we wouldn't need to blink twice to know exactly what biblical event Chazal were pointing to and connecting the story of Avraham to in this regard. And we'll come back to that in a moment. I'll give you two very brief, uh, simple examples or uh, maybe just one for now. Uh, one of the most famous statements Rashi quotes in uh, Chumash, uh, Pinchas ben Elazar Kohen, uh, ben Arona Kohen, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Arona Kohen, Pinchas hu Eliyahu. Simple medrash quoted often, the, the identification of Pinchas with Eliyahu and Navi. Uh, to put Pinchas into the story of Eliyahu and Navi, uh, would make Pinchas at the time of Eliyahu uh, somewhere approximately, uh, by my guess, about 600 years old. Possible. Yeah, possible. But if so, Chazal was telling us a very fanciful story of an individual who reached the ages. This is before he went up to Shemaim. Before Eliyahu. Eliyahu goes up to Shemaim alive, that we know. At least according to most of the Mepharshim. There are Mepharshim who interpret the story of Aliyah's Aliyah to Shemaim, uh, not as going up alive, but actually as dying. It's a process of dying. But that's a separate discussion. But for, for Pinchas to be 600 years old, and to run before Ahav's chariot, that is quite a feat. <laughs> However, uh, what I think Ramadan is pointing to is the suggestion, and this I think is intuitive 
is that there are so many parallels between the story of Pinchas and the story of Eliyahu. Personality parallels, conceptual parallels, parallels that link the two events. What Chazal was trying to do is to say, here's the story of Pinchas, here's the story of Eliyahu. Now go finish the job. And finish the job means go and compare all the, the stories we have of Pinchas, all the stories we have of Eliyahu, and you will see the significance of the word kana, the word kanoi, the word zealot. Pinchas, asher kinei Pinchas, bekanoat kinati betocham, who was zealous for God and did what he did. Eliyahu, who declares in Harakamel in source number six, Pinchas Eliyahu of himself declares that I was zealous for you, O God. The only other individual of whom it says was zealous for God, the Kanot Kinati, was Pinchas. That comparison is both a comparison and a contrast, because Eliyahu's story is controversial. Eliyahu's moment in Har Kamel, or in this particular case, Eliyahu's moment in, at Har Chorev, in the cave where Moshe Rabbeinu received the nevuah of Yud Midot Rachamim, when Hashem says to him, Lo Barash, Lo Ba'esh, that the, the, the time is not a time for anger and noise and rash and esh and kina and esh min this is a time for called mamadaka and Eliyahu's mission as a navi comes to a conclusion comes to comes to a close at that moment he is told to go and anoint Elisha as his successor Elisha is a mirror image and complete opposite personality to Eliyahu and so by connecting Pinchas to Eliyahu what Chazal is telling us is not only to compare the kanaut of the two but also ultimately the failure of Pinch of Eliyahu's Zealotry, and now go back and reread not Chumash, but reread Sefer Shoftim, where Pinchas appears, and his zealotry in the context of his appearance in Sefer Shoftim, which is in the story of Pelegash Begiva, ultimately is responsible for one of the most devastating episodes in a civil war at the end of Sefer Shoftim, Pelegash Begiva, where Pinchas plays a direct role, and Chazal points to those, that period of time has Pinchas' failure. And Chazal in the comparison to Pinchas and Eliyahu, I don't think are being praised, are, are not trying to praise Eliyahu, I think they're trying to place a caveat and a limit on the zealotry of Pinchas. And suddenly the whole story turns around. But to understand that, we need to go through the process of linking all the events of Pinchas and Eliyahu throughout Tanakh. And that's, I think, what Chazal included in this very brief Statement, Pinchas, Hu, Eliyahu. Let me go through a couple of brief examples. And I sa- as I said in my introduction today, Shir is really a, it's a likut. It's a collection of various examples of this thesis. Uh, and so it's, uh, we're going to jump from place to place with your permission. Source number seven is the famous Midrash about Eli- Avram Avinu. Uh, it's actually uh, two Midrashim that we often um, quote separately, but they're really brought together. And they, I don't need to tell you, the stories of Eliyah, of Abraham's origins, his fight against idolatry, uh, starts with, starts where? With his father's idols in his father's workshop. Uh, the the uh, Medrash is here. If you would like, I'm going to skip reading it for now. 
um, in text, uh, just for the, for the sake of brevity, but essentially there are two stories in this Midrash. The first story uh, is Abraham, or Avram at this point in time, uh, in his father's factory. Uh, in comes a person, and uh, I'll just read a couple of lines from this Midrash. Uh, actually, the, the, the opening pasuk is important for us. The context of this Midrash is to interpret a pasuk. The specific verse is the death of Haran al Pnei Terach Aviv during the life of his father Terach. What, what brought about the demise of Haran? The text in the Torah does not tell us. And so Chazal, Mashlimat Apar, are trying to understand the background to, uh, te- to Haran's death. Terach was an idolater. How do I know that Terach was an idolater? Excuse me? Like father, like son. How do I know that Terach was an idolater? Is this the Medrash, right? This is, the, this, is the, this is it. This is the source, right? Not quite. How do I know that Terach was an idolater? Excuse me? The Haggadah. That's half an answer. Why is it half an answer? Haggadah is correct. Haggadah tells us. But Haggadah is a quote. And the quote is from? No. There's no reference. That's the beauty of these Midrashim. There's no reference to Terach as an idolater in all of Sefer Brishit. I'll go one step further. There's no reference to Avraham as somebody who fought against idolatry in all of Sefer Brishit. That which we take for granted, that Abraham's whole theology was about a recognition of God in a world, in a pagan world, the story of Abraham begins with Lech Lecha. It actually begins one paragraph earlier when Terach takes his family and starts the journey to Haran, but that's it. And then he starts building Mizbachot. The reference to Terach as an Oved Avodah Zarah is in fact in Sefer Yehoshua which is the Pasuk that we quote in the Haggadah. Terach avi Avraham avi Nachor Mitchil avdu hayu avdei avadah zarah Pasuk in Yehoshua when Yehoshua brings all the people together for a final uh, message at the end of his life. Be that as it may, Terach is, we know from Yehoshua, that Terach is an idolater. Again, the Medrash doesn't tell us where that source comes from. It assumes we know. Then the Medrash tells us about Abraham. Abraham is, one day, Terach has to go out, he asks Abraham to look after the shop. In comes a man, the, asks to buy one of these, uh, buy the, uh, these, these, he wants to buy one of the idols. Abraham says to him, how old are you? He says, 50 or 60. Abraham says, why do you want to worship something that was made this morning? Remind, it, it, it's reminiscent of a Pasuk actually in the context of Pesach Micha there's a very powerful Pasuk in which um, Micha goes running after the people who stole his idol and he says to them you have stolen the gods which I have made think about the significance of that Pasuk 
Then a woman comes in with a basket of, uh, of food, and she says she wants to give it to one of the idols. Abraham takes the basket, he places it in the hands of one of the idols, takes a stick, smashes all the idols, puts the stick into the hands of the largest of the idols. His father comes home and he says to his father, and his father says to him, what happened here? And his, he says, well, the lady came in with a basket of food, and the idols started to fight. And this one says, no, it's mine. This one says, no, it's mine. And in the end, uh, the largest one took a stick, and he smashed all of the idols. If you take a look at the end of the first paragraph, Come, Amarle, Ma'ata Maflebi, says Terach to Abraham, you are mocking me. Amarle, Vied in Anun, do they know, do they have life, do they have substance that they can fight each other? Amarle, Vilo Yishmoz Necha Mashapicha Omer, let your ears hear what your mouth is saying. Immediately, Next paragraph. Nazbe umasve lenimrod. Terach takes Abraham and he brings him to Nimrod. Who is Nimrod? King of? Melech Shin'ar. The king of the land of Shin'ar. And here already I share with you the first hint. Melech Shin'ar. Where and what is Shin'ar? Otherwise known as Bavel otherwise known as Bavel. And the rest of the story, Abraham comes to Melech Nimrod. Nimrod says to him, I bow down to the fire, bow down to the fire. uh, Abraham says, what about water? Water douses fire. Okay, let's bow down to water. What about uh, the the, the wind? Wind can put out the fire. Let's bow down to the wind. What about man? Man can stand before the wind. Abraham says, let's bow down to man. Finally, Nimrod says, enough with the game playing. I bow down to fire, fire will be with which you will be judged, throws him into the furnace, and he is saved. At that point, the Medrash ends that Haran, remember Haran? Haran was standing and watching all of this. The end of the second paragraph. The Medrash doesn't say, oh, Abraham went into the Kivshan Eish and he was saved. Never tells us that. What it says is, since once Abraham went into the Kivshan Eish and was saved by the by, since that we take as a given, Amnon lay, they turned to Haran and said, Demand at whose side are you on? Amar lohon min So he said, well, I'm on Abraham's side, because he was obviously saved. They threw him into the Ur, they threw him into the fire, and he was consumed. There are, in fact, in this story, how many different components in this Midrash do we have? Five. Probably, for sake of brevity, we'll work with three. What are the What are the five or three? You have the man who's 50 or 60, which for now I'm going to leave. And essentially you have Abraham challenging his father over his father's culture of idolatry. Number one. Number two. Abraham in the furnaces of Nimrod. And number three is a much more subtle. The third component is the perception that the, or the absurdity of the idols fighting for the, defending themselves. 
The absurdity of the idols fighting themselves. Each one of these midrashic components is a biblical event. Each one of these midrashic components is a biblical event. The challenge is, none of them are in Sefer Breshit. But they're very clear. The most, let's start with the most famous. The story of Abraham in the Kibshan Eish of Nimrod, let me reframe it. A person, or representing a group of people, Abraham represents the Jewish people, who is challenged by the king of the, the area known as Shinar or Bavel to bow down to that which everybody is bowing down to, but he refuses. And as a punishment is thrown into the fiery furnace, and lo and behold, is saved from the fiery furnace by a miraculous event. That story appears in Tanakh, in Sefer Daniel, Perak Gimel. The individual who's, or group of individuals who's thrown into the fiery furnace, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the furnace belongs to the king of Shinar, or by its new name, Bavel, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. Chazal did not invent the story. So now the question is, somebody people ask me, did the story really happen? The answer is, of course. It happened to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the Kivshana Eish of, uh, of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. The question is not whether the story happened to Abraham. The correct question is, why did Chazal superimpose the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into the context of the world of Abraham? That's a sheer into itself. Because now suddenly, it opens, us, opens up for us the question of what parallels are there between the world of Abraham and the world of Daniel. What's going on in the arena of history at the time of Abraham and what's going on in the arena of history at the time of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the same geographic region? It's not an accident that we're in Bavel. Abraham's story doesn't begin in Pashat Lech Lecha. Abraham's story begins where and when? In the, it begins in Pashat Noach. In fact, the Pasuk that Chazal built this entire Medrash on, is the Pasuk at the end of Pashat Noach that describes the journey from Mesopotamia to Haran, or the journey from Orkazdim to Haran that Terach takes with his family and then stays in Haran, beginning of Pashat Lech Lecha, God comes to Avram and he says, okay, finish the job, finish the journey. You're not done. Lech Lecha But if that's true, and we're in the end of Pashat Noach, then how does Shin'ar become Bavel? How does Shin'ar become Bavel? Excuse me? In Shinar and Bavel's case, that's not the way the Torah describes it. In Shinar and Bavel's case, Shinar is the area, Bavel is the name given to it after Migdal Bavel. Now, suddenly we're into a whole new ballgame. Why? Have you ever worked through the, the, the calculations of when Migdal Bavel took place? Because I'll have a very specific time frame in which they identify the. Um, the sequence of events in Migdal Bavel. Uh, it's based on a pasuk of, of uh, the birth of Peleg. I won't go through the chronology now because it's not relevant to our discussion. 
But from creation and Chazal's calculation, Migdal Bavel took place in the year 1996. Fine. That's not necessarily a number you need to know. The key to all biblical chronology, the key to remembering all of biblical chronology is to remember the year in which Avraham Avinu was born. If you remember the year Avraham Avinu was born, you can recalculate in your head virtually all of the rest of Tanakh. Avraham Avinu, and it's a very easy year to remember, from creation, Avraham is born in the year 1948. Now, if that's true, how old is Avraham at the time of Migdal Bavel? 48. Take a look at source number 11 and 12. Ben kama shanim hikir Avraham et How old was Abraham when he recognized God? Now, that's a question we, we all, I don't know if any of you are teachers in, in, in schools, but I know my children always come home with the, uh, f- from school, growing up in the day school system, uh, and they always are taught that how old is Abraham when he discovers God? Three. He's three. And then, of course, we go immediately into the second Midrash about how it was that Avraham Avinu discovered God. He saw the sun, and he thought the sun was God, and then he saw that the sun set, and then he saw the moon rise, so he thought the moon was God, then he saw the moon set, and then he said, oh, it must be something that's above the sun and above the moon. It must be God. Okay? If he's three years old, I can hear the thought process that he's never seen or recognized or realized that the sun's r- sun rises and sets on a daily basis. However, says the Medrash, three years old is only one opinion. Ben kama shanim hikir Avraham et bo'o, ben mem chet shana hikir et bo'o. First opinion says he was 48. Reish Lakish omer ben shalosh. Reish Lakish says he was three based on a text, Ekevashit Ishmael Bukali, so not our issue for now. How did 48 come about? Take a look in the second Midrash, source number 12, Seder Olam, Minamabul Ata Palaga Shin Mem Shana, from the Mabul until Migdal Bavel is 340 years. Avram is 48 at the time of Migdal Bavel. What do I do with all of this? It's very simple. What brought Avram Avinu to recognize God? So we usually interpret that to be some kind of intellectual, philosophical thought process. Looked at the sun, looked at the moon. Says, what the Medrash is really trying to tell us is that what brought Avram to Avinu to recognize God was that he was a spectator at Migdal Bavel. And in Migdal Bavel, all of humankind was united under one banner. One Melech. One king. That king's name was Nimrod. Take a look at the Sfar now. On the story of Migdal Bavel in Source 10, Zot Haita Itzat Sarei Ador Lahamlich et Nimrod al Kol Hamin Enoshi. The intention was to place Nimrod at the top of the tower. One of the famous questions about Migdal Bavel was what was the theological foundation of the fight with God? Why was God so angry at Migdal Bavel? So you build a tower. Did they really expect to go up to Shemaim and throw God out of the heavens? They built a tower in which they would unify all of humankind. One nation. One united humankind. 
But at the top of this Migdal, they would place their king. And who was their king? Nimrod. That's at that point God comes down and he says, unity is good. But only if you're unified for good purpose. If you unify all of humankind for the purpose of placing Nimrod as your king, or your king of kings in the first global empire, that's not necessarily so good. Global empires don't usually end well. And so the sun and the moon rising and falling, which represents perhaps the nations of the world rising and falling and rising and falling until finally they're all unified under one banner, Nimrod, comes along the Rabbani Shalom and separates them, destroys their unity, breaks the Migdal, and spreads mankind over the rest of the globe. Abraham Avinu is standing there and watching the sunrise on this kingdom and the sunrise on this kingdom and finally realizes that there is no single one king, earthly king, who runs the world, call him Nimrod or call him Nebuchadnezzar. There's one Rabbani Shalom over all. Ben Memchet Shanaya Be'akirat Bo'o. That's precisely the world in which Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Isaiah operate. That's the world of Nebuchadnezzar, who stands on the top of his palace, looks out on all of Babel and said, this is the bubble I have created with my hands, the entire world united under one banner, and instantly is transformed into an animal, into a beast of the field. This is Nebuchadnezzar who places an, an, a, a monument, or places a, a idol in, in the valley and insists that every single person come and bow down to it, says Tosvot that this idol, supposedly, wasn't really an idol at all. But it was a giant 60 cubit high gold statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Whose arrogance only matched Nimrod. And suddenly there's a whole new world of insight into the world of Abraham Avinu, into the struggles of Abraham Avinu, into the complexity of what brought about Abraham Avinu to understand the role of God in the world, because Chazal connected the dots for us. And they linked the story of Abraham Avinu in the background of Nimrod to the story of Daniel, Chalani, Mishal, Vazariah against the backdrop of Nebuchadnezzar. The other two parts of this Midrash, I'm going to move on because I'm short on time. The other two parts of this Midrash, uh, namely Avma, how it starts, where Avma has to fight against his father's idols. And uh, the idols that, the absurdity of the idols fighting them for themselves are also biblical events. The uh, story of the son who has to break his father's idols before his mission to the world can begin. Now, I reframe the, the, the story. The story of the man appointed by God to bring a message to the, or to lead the world whose mission cannot begin until he destroys his father's idolatry is essentially the story of Gidon. And what Chazal did in the story of Abraham breaking his father's idols was essentially drew our attention to the parallels between Abraham and Gidon. Now, that's a sheer unto itself. Suddenly, there's a whole set of hosts of parallels between Gidon's wars and Avram's wars, and Avram's struggles. Including the fact that the tragedy of Gidon, who had to fight against the, Nivea, uh, against the idolatry of Baal, who had to break his father's altar in, of Baal in order to start his mission, and of whom there was so much anticipation and so much hope, Gidon's failure 
starts from the moment the Pasuk says that he was afraid to break the, uh, the altar by day, and so he did it by night. And that fear will carry with him for the rest of the story. What r- characterizes Avram's mission to the world is that he is fearless. And parallels often, I would say even more often than not, I would even venture to say almost always, carry with them biblical parallels, carry with them contrast and comparison. All right, let's move on to a couple of very brief examples just because I want to show you how this thesis operates. Avma Vinu in the Akedah. Source number 13. There's a beautiful medrash that Rashi quotes. It's based on the Gemara and Sanhedrin. That the story of the Akedah begins how? nisa et Avraham. Why does God test Abraham in the Akedah? Right, what's the Medrash? The Medrash starts with this conversation between God and the Satan. God and the Satan. Source number 13. After these things, God tested Abraham. What was these things after which the Nisayan of the Akedah came? After the words of the Satan. After the birth of Yitzchak. And he is, uh, he, he is weaned. Ava makes a suda to in the weaning of his son. Amar Satan this Avma Vinu at the age of 100, you gave him a son, makes a big feast to celebrate the fact that his son is growing up, by mitzvah celebration, whatever it was, and he doesn't even offer a single korban to you. It's a text issue here in this message I'm not going to get into. Amar im ani omer lo zovech et you don't get it. This man is righteous. If I told him to sacrifice the son before me, he would do it. It's a beautiful medrash. Essentially places the entire Nisayan of the Akedah as a response of God to the challenge of the Satan. Midrashic story. This Midrashic story has a clear biblical context. It is the opening passage, per, chap, the first chapter of Sefer Eov. It's exactly what happens in Eov's case. Where the Satan comes to God and says, I've been to the world. And God says, have you seen my righteous Eov? And Satan says, oh, he's only righteous because you've blessed him with children and with wealth and with all of these things. And there's nobody as wealthy as he and there's nobody as powerful as he. And, this, and God says, what are you talking about? I give you permission to go and take it all away from, from Eov as long as you don't touch Eov. Actually, if you open up the, the beginning of Sefer Eov, it shows something very interesting. You should open the Tanakh this year too. Ish hayah be'eretz utz, Eov shmo, v'yayah ha'ishahu tam v'yashar, Bire Elokim, Bisar Meira. 
Yehuvah is described in the opening verse as Yirei Elokim. What was the conclusion of the Akedah? Yatayadati Yirei Elokim Ata. It was Avram's moment to prove, to demonstrate his Yirat Elokim. Not Avat Elokim, but Yirat Elokim. That's what Yehuvah is all about. Chazal saw in the Sefer Yehuvah the story of the Akedah and vice versa. And there are parallels between Eov and Abraham that are remarkable. But we wouldn't begin to think, who would, amongst us would, have begin, would begin to think about comparing Avram to Eov on so many levels. Avram's greatest moment where he says, he argues before God for the, for the uh, people of Sdom. And he says, I am but dust and, and, and ashes. That phrase appears in Sefer Eov almost exactly this, in exactly the same fashion as Source 15. With one profound difference. In Abraham's case, it was an expression of deep humility. In Eov's case, it was a moment of deep despair. The, contra- the comparison between Avram and Eov is a comparison that contrasts the loyalty of Abraham, the non-questioning fashion of which Avraham is placed in the Nisayin of the Akedah and goes, goes through it silently and willingly to the constant challenge that Eov undergoes throughout the Sefer and the challenge that he places before God. Both Eov and Avraham stand before God and argue with God. The difference being, Eov the difference being that Avraham argues for Stom, and Eov argues for himself. Who would have begun the comparison of Avraham to Eov, and from there you can go on, because it doesn't stop, were it not for this, what seems as a very fanciful story in the context of Avraham and the Akedah. And there are many others. And there are many others. Another example. This is one of my favorite. Why was Moshe Rabbeinu chosen to be the Navi, the Goel? What characteristic in Moshe's arsenal of, of, of character traits in Midot did God see to say, oh, you're it? Right? The shepherd and the little sheep, that, the little shepsler that goes lost. Right. It's really remarkable because there are three stories in Sefer Breshit. Sorry, in Sefer Shemot. There are three stories in Sefer Shemot at the beginning of Moshe's life which so clearly demonstrate to us what it was about Moshe that made him the ideal candidate to be the Goel, the one who cares, the one who stands up to defend the, the, the Israelite from the hands of the Egyptians, the one who stands up against the, 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 two, the uh, two Jews fighting with each other, the one who stands up for complete strangers in Benot Midian, the, the um, Benot Yitro. There's a beautiful article by Nechama Libor where she traces... In, in, in which she traces the sequence of those three events. I don't need to run to a medrash to explain why Moshe deserved to be chosen as the leader. And yet, that's precisely what the medrash does in source 26. Sorry, source 16. Hashem Tzadik Yivchan Vameu Bochno How does God choose his leaders, 
How does he test them? It's a medrash that lists a whole host of leaders of the Jewish people that all started as shepherds, and shepherds including, of course, David HaMelech. Moshe himself was tested with the sheep. Little Gdi ran away from Moshe, he was the shepherd of, his, of Yitro's flock, and Kivan Shigil Chasut Nizdamnalo Bricha Shalmaim Yamad Gdi Lishtot. This little Gdi runs away, Moshe goes running after it, and he finds that it stopped at a pool or spring of water. I had no idea, little Gdi, that you were tired and thirsty. If I'd known that you were tired and thirsty, I would have carried you here. So he picked him up, put him on his shoulders, and carried him home. To explain why Moshe was a ro'eh, God looked at him and said, Oh, you are the perfect candidate to lead my people. So, that's the story. Moshe, of all of the stories that are written in the, in the text of Chumash, the, the Medrash leaves and goes running to a seemingly fanciful story of Moshe running after a lost sheep in order to find that moment where God would look at him and said, you're it. That story has a very clear biblical context. Namely? David, I'm not sure. Shaul. Shaul. Why Shaul? Because Shaul's moment where he is chosen to become the king of Israel is in the context of a story in which Shaul goes looking for the lost donkeys of his father. The Atanot that went lost. And his father sends him on a mission. Go find the Atanot. And he goes looking and there's a whole discussion with him and his Nar. He goes looking for the finally after three days they're ready to give up. And they happen to come across the Navi. They come across the Navi, and the Navi say, and they come to the Navi asking the Navi, who innocently, have you seen my lost donkey? And the Navi says to him, "Don't worry about your donkeys. I got a much bigger mission for you. You're about to become the king of the first king of Israel." Parakhet of Sefer Shmuel So why do we think that Chazal took the story of Shaul looking for his donkeys? and finding milucha, and finding kingship, and superimposed it, minor changes, but essentially the same story, and superimposed it into the world of Moshe Rabbeinu. What did Chazal want us to take away from that comparison? Remember, it's not the story that I think Chazal were trying to teach us, it's the contrast, it's the parallel. It's a very sophisticated game of connected dots. What we do today, intuitively, by comparing text and phrases, Chazal did by comparing events and personalities and, event and sequences. And so when they connected Moshe to Shaul, what were they telling us? Well, there's a whole list of, compar- his- there's a whole list of comparisons. E.g., 
First king of Israel, first Goel, redeemer of Israel, and Chazal actually defined Moshe as a Melech as well. Because his role, his job description, wasn't just to redeem them from Egypt, but actually to lead them in battle and to be their political and, and military leader as well. And that's a whole sheer unto itself. What else? The human compa- compa- compassion and the attribute of compassion, but more st- to the point, yes. We're gonna, we're gonna, correct. We're gonna come to the failure. Correct, and that's why I believe that every comparison in Tanakh is also a contrast. If Chazal connecting the dots and Chazal comparing Moshe to Shaul, it's because Chazal want us to do two things. First, they want us to compare them and list the comparisons. And when we're done, ask ourselves precisely the question you just asked, which is, but Shaul failed and Moshe succeeded. So not only do they have a parallel together, but wherein lies the difference and the why distinction did, between them? And why did one fail and the other? The most, the most powerful characteristic that defines the parallel between Moshe and Shaul is humility, anava. Moshe's humility is well known. It's documented in the Torah, the most humble of all people. Moshe, who does not respond to the attack of Miriam on him personally, but very much responds when he comes before Paro in his first encounter, and instead of making it better for Bnei Yisrael, it makes it worse, and, B'nai Yisrael, and he walks out in his very first mission to Paro, and Bnei Yisrael turn to him and say to him, right, and, and say to him, why did you make it worse? Right, why did you, why have you made it uh, terrible before, before uh, uh, Paro? Moshe responds. How does he respond? He turns to God and says, on behalf of the people, why did you do this? And when Korach responds by rebelling against not Moshe the person, but his leadership and his nevuah and his, stat- and his status as the Navi before God, of, to the people, Moshe responds harshly. Because although he is a Nav Mikol Adam, because he is a most humble of all people, but he also knows that he has a mission and a mandate and a purpose. And by knowing what that mission and purpose is, he's able to distinguish between those moments where the attacks are personal and he lets it go, and those moments where the attacks are because of what he represents and he has to defend the honor and the integrity of the mission or the Nevoah before God. And most the classic example of the most humble, strong leader. Shaul's story begins with the same kind of humility. He goes looking for the donkey and he finds Malucha. Not only that, there are some beautiful textual parallels between the two. Take a look on the last page of your source booklet. In which you have a, uh, a chart which I tried to draw some of the textual parallels between Shaul and Moshe. When Shaul is first appointed, on the right top right-hand column, Shmuel Shmuel 
I, tomorrow, God says to Shmuel, I will send you tomorrow, ke'et machar, I will send you somebody who, from Eretz Binyamin, who will lead my people against the Plishtim, because I have seen my people and I heard their cry. At the moment when Moshe stood at the snare, and God says to him, I will send you, the moment of his appointment, the moment, here's the, the image, the picture, Shaul stands before Shmuel, who represents God's voice, Moshe stands before the Malach at the burning bush, who represents God's voice. And what does God say to him? I see my people, I've heard their cry. And I will send you to Paro. Shaul's response to this mission, I'm from Benjamin, I'm one of the smallest, I'm not, who am I that I should go to before the Plishti? What was Moshe's response? The humility is there in both cases. In fact, in Paragud, continuation of the story, which I'm not going to go into now, Shmuel gives Shaul three proofs to the authenticity of his message that he is in fact the appointing him to be the king of Israel. Three otot. How many otot were, was Moshe given at the snare to prove the authenticity of his message before the people? Three otot. But here we come to what I believe to be the key issue. What was Shaul's downfall? What tripped him? What destroyed him? His own humility. Because in the context of the story of the battle with Amalek, Shmuel comes to him and he says, what about Agag? What about the Tzon? What about everything else? You didn't finish the job that I asked you to do. And he says... In the second, he says, "Kiareti." Um, in, the, in the last, bottom right-hand side of the column, I was afraid of the people. All the humility of the world, if the leader is afraid of the people, and he cannot fin- do the job that God sent him to do. In Katonata Be'enecha Rosh Shifte Yisrael Ata, what Shaul missed, Moshe understood. Humility Be'eravon Mubal, I put on the side here. Humility with limited liability. And so when Chazal took the story of the little Shapsala, the little Gdi, that Moshe went looking for, in order to find his, uh, uh, and found greatness, and found the position of the leader, what Chazal were trying to do was draw our attention to the parallel to Shaul, but the parallel which leads to a conclusion or a contrast that helps us understand much more about Shaul than it tells us about Moshe. And so many of these Medrashim, the purpose is not to explain the insights of the text in which these Medrashim appear, but actually to share insight, to, sh- to, to help us move our eye from the text of the Chumash, or from the text of one part of, the to- of Tanakh to another, and to understand deeper insights by comparison and contrast. There are many other examples, and I'm just going to... Um, 
just as in the, uh, just a cross reference. Uh. All right, we have five minutes left, so somewhere along the line we'll have to do part two. There's a whole additional genre of midrashim that I think fall under a similar context. They're not midrashic stories, but they are interpretations of mitzvot in the context of smichut parshiot. When Chazal would come along and see two or three paragraphs of mitzvot in the Torah linked one after the other, and ask the question, Why is this parsha connected to this one? The problem with this genre of Midrash is that you can ask that question about every mitzvah in the Torah. Chazal don't. They ask it about very specific instances and very specific mitzvot. And so the question that the Mephashim struggle with is why here? What's the issue that raised the, eye, the eyes of Chazal and raised their eyebrows to say this smichut, this juxtaposition is different? So for example... In uh, source 17, Chazal saw the story of Eshet Yifat Tor, beginning of Pashat Kitetze, and the mitzvah of Ben Sorer Umorah, and the mitzvah of the two wives and the two firstborns and who would have preference. all as linked one after the other. Chazal say in source 17, This is quoted from Rashi. The Torah wants us to know that even though the Torah allowed, permitted, however, if one was to take her, so for liot sona, he will eventually despise her. That's the next mitzvah in the Torah. Kitiyan elish ten hashem, two wives, one loved, one hated. V'sofol lo lid mimenu ben soreru more, and eventually will give birth to a child who will be rebellious ben soreru more. Lachain ismachu pashiot halalo. Now, it's a remarkable juxtaposition of all mitzvot in the Torah, especially in Kitetze, where there are Dozens of mitzvot. Why these three? The answer is, perhaps, because Chazal saw in this juxtaposition uniquely a biblical story. They saw a sequence in Tanakh, Mul and Ehem, opposite their eyes, and they said, Aha! You see this sequence of events? This is what the Torah is referring to. Teaching us more about those events then about the mitzvah and the Torah. In this particular instance, what did they see? The most classic, the most famous, Ben Soreru Moreh, born from an Eshet Yifat To'ar in Tanakh, is Avshalom. And his rebellion against David HaMelech, Avshalom is born from Ma'acha, and Ma'acha was an Eshet Yifat To'ar. And that's precisely what Chazal did in Source 18. In this particular case, they actually spelled it out for us. If you marry a Ben a Yifat Tower, you are going to have a Ben Sorero More. This is the source upon which Rashi bases this Medrash. In the source, the Medrash adds three words. Shechen Matsinu Bedavid. 
In this particular case, the Medrash spells it out for us. That's the story of David, Ashechamad Macha ben Melech, Melech Kishur, Menu Av Shalom. Another example, which I won't go into, but I'll just reference for you, is the juxtaposition of the mitzvah of Nazir and Sota. Remarkable juxtaposition. What do Nazir and Sota have in common? One is the height of sanctity, and the other is Sota. We won't go into the mitzvah of Sota right now. And the answer is, there's a clear connection. Namely, who is the most famous Nazir who was also known for his relationship with women that was not necessarily kosher? Jimshon. The juxtaposition of the Sota who is, uh, of the context of Sota, which is unbridled passion, and the context of Nazir, which is limited, controlled passion, is precisely the balance of the world of Shimshon. And so in that mitzvah, Chazal gave us the key to understanding the challenge of Shimshon and Shimshon's story. You turn to the third page. Now this, I have uh, literally one minute left, so I'm not going to, I'm just going to give you a, a road map to the rest of the sources. Zil, Idach, Gomor. There's much more here. Here's the road map. It's a beautiful medvish, which we, again, all these midrashim end up being stories and lore that we teach our children. Mamar Haisinai. Why was Haisinai chosen? It's the mountain upon which the Torah was given. We all know the famous story. All the mountains are arguing, I, I, the Torah should be given on me, and comes along little Haisinai and says, well, I'm nothing, give the Torah wherever you want. The context of that medrash is really very remarkable because it has nothing to do with the mountains coming and arguing with each other about the Torah being given on me, certainly not the mountains down in south in Midbar Sinai. The source is medrash in Breshid Rabbah, source 22, on the Pasuk from Tehillim, Lama Tiratzdun Narim Gavnunim Mahar Hamad Alakim Lishifto Av Hashem Yishkon Lenetzach, Pasuk which is talking about Har Bashan. Is a pasuk from Tehillim, in which Tehillim, in which David Amalek describes the great victory again in a, what was clearly his biggest, largest world war at the time on the mountains of the hilltops of Har Bashan, or Harei Bashan, also known today as the Golan Heights. Listen to this. To the text. When the Kaddish Baruch Hu came to give the Torah at Har Sinai, the mountains came and started to dance or fight or discuss. This one said, What mountains? So when we teach this message, we never refer to which mountains. But the message was very specific. Because the Medrash is based on the Pesukim in Tehillim. The first mountain referenced is Tavor. Tavor ba mi Beit Elim. The second mountain, Carmel. Carmel me Aspamia. Take the connection, Tavor, Carmel, and Bashan. And what do the three mountains in this Medrash have in common? 
They're all mountains of Eretz Yisrael. So the first subtext of this medrash is that it's not about which mountain was higher and which mountain was lower. It was about why the Torah was given in Chutz Laaretz and not in Eretz Yisrael. Separate question. But the second subtext in this medrash is that on each one of these mountains there was a great revelation of God's presence. Eliyahu and Harakamel. Devora in Anhar Tavor, where Devora says explicitly, and she draws the connection between her victory in Har Tavor and the revelation of God's presence at Sinai, and Davin Melech's victory in Har Bashan. Telling us not about Har Sinai, but telling us about these three moments of great revelation and victory in battle, that they are comparable in nature to the revelation of the Rabbanu Shlom's Shechina on Har Sinai itself. And so the purpose, the direction of this Medrash is reversed. Rabbi there is much more here to uh, discuss. We have run out of time, but Zil Idach, Zil Gemara. Thank you very much.